Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Vinny. Hi, all you road to growth listeners. Uh, today, uh, we are lucky enough to have Ron, and I'm not going to, tr- you know what, I'm horrible when it comes to name. What's your, how do you say your last name, Ron? Carucci. Carucci. You know what, I guess I could have probably got that right. You're the, so the co-founder and managing partner of Navalent? Navalent, close enough. Close enough. All right. See, I, you know, like sometimes you just got to take a, take a chance and just kind of go for it. So thank you for, uh, for being on here. So you're, um, focus on you focus on executives right focus on helping executives kind of yeah yeah all right now i did a little legwork i mean we usually with a lot of the guests here we'll usually have a little bit dialogue beforehand we didn't really have that that much beforehand so i did a little legwork myself uh two things that kind of popped up and we're going to get to kind of your company everything like that yet uh juilliard at 10 years old and your mother uh catching you with marijuana and Sending you to the police? <laughs> I don't know where. I don't know where you found that stuff. That's old data. But yeah, uh, I wasn't at ten at Juilliard. I was ten working in the foreign arts industry, but I didn't go to Juilliard to college. Okay, um, okay, and, okay. And yeah, my mother did uh, play hardball when she caught me uh, with my neighbor's pot. Yep. I, I had to dive deep. You know, sometimes we we put what we want out there, and I was like, you know, let me get some of the good nuggets right there. Um, <laughs> So, so, so walk, walk me through, walk us through basically, uh, where does, where does Ron come from? So I grew up in New York, uh, classic, I, I'm sure you can relate as a Molinero, a classic New York Italian family, a uh, big family, um, uh, grew up outside of New York, pretty competitive environment, pretty, you know, driven environment. I uh, went to school in New York and, uh, youngest of five. So, you know, I was always the one trying to keep up. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's where I'm from. Okay. So you're, it sounds like if you went to Juilliard later in life, was that basically born with trained? How did you kind of work your way? Performing arts. I mean, we grew up up outside outside New York city. A lot of people, you have a, there's a tremendous amount of talent there. So I started working in the performing arts industry, you know, when I was a kid, um, my parents had sort of. The notion that I was going to go to, go to pre med school in college because we didn't have a doctor yet. I was the last one in the family, so I'd be the doctor. I had different ideas, and so was auditioning for a variety of schools. Got into Juilliard, and didn't tell my parents till graduation day. <laughs> oh wow! That they, they probably needed to stop telling their friends I was going to pre med because I wasn't. Uh, so went to Juilliard for a couple of years. I didn't stay there. I mean, I I, I learned that while I was getting all these great jobs and all my friends were like, wow, what a great job. Uh, first of all, you weren't really out of work when you were there. So you had to sort of keep it a secret, but I didn't have the silver spoon to pay for it. So I had to earn money somehow. Um, but I, what I learned is that I bored easily. Like I'd be thinking I have to do the same thing eight times a week for how long? And I just was not enjoying that work. So I took a break. <clears throat> I transferred to NYU to try a different look at the, the work there, but then decided I wanted to break from New York City because I felt like I don't I don't know that I'm in the right career field. Maybe my parents did something I didn't. That just because I can I'm good at it and can make money at it doesn't mean I should do it. 
So I went on, uh, went and joined a, a global nonprofit organization that, that used a lot of mixed media to train and teach that contracts with the U.S. military and State Department in Europe. And I, got, I thought, gosh, at that age, getting to travel the world would be great and, and, and learn more about myself and learn why a, a craft and an art I loved so much was so readily unfulfilling for me. Um, and I, I, did, I did learn that. So a few years into our time, I was living in Germany at the time. And uh, so this, we, the, back, back in the, the 80s, the, the term diversity and inclusion wasn't a term then, but we were doing a workshop uh, in the chapel at Dachau. Uh, and you know the, the, the topic would have been called diversity and inclusion if that was a term back then. And none of the irony about what we were talking about was lost on us, that we were in a place like that, in, in, a, you know, in a spiritual building, at a place where so much horror took place, where there was no tolerance of other people, talking about dealing with differences, right? So I think all of us in the room understood the profoundness of what we were doing. And we would, you know, use we would use all kinds of media and art forms to sort of present and provoke an audience to get into conversations. And during one of the conversations, one of this young military soldiers, not probably not much older than me, uh, stood up and said, I, I'm really just so tired of being trained to hate. And I, my, my first response in my head was, how did something we did up here make them think that? And we processed it, processed it, you know, I mean, you had Germans and Americans and military and civilians. It was a pretty diverse room. Processed the conversation, but I, I was so struck that he was willing to say that. I wanted to know what it meant. So, you know, you're in Munich, Germany, you go out for beers. It's Oktoberfest. So I, I caught him afterwards. And I said, Let's, I want to know more. And I was so fascinated by his story and his willingness to talk about it. I think that was the beginning for me, Vince, of realizing that, you know, telling great stories is very interesting, but what I really loved was entering other people's story, was helping people figure out why their story was the way it was and how to help rethink that story. Um, and I think that was the beginning of the arc of changing my career to becoming an, uh, an organizational psychologist and entering stories that would never bore me, entering stories that were gonna be different every day, uh, and getting the chance, the profound privilege to walk around, walk alongside leaders in a variety of settings from startup to grow up and help them rethink the story of their leadership and their organizations and their and their strategies and help them rethink uh, how that story was going to go, especially if the story wasn't going well. So I think that's a sort of a the long arc of how I got here. So walk, walk me through. I mean, I look at it that we we learn more about who we are and helping other people out through our own struggles and own trip, I mean, trials, tribulations, and everything like that. So, being that you help so many executives, has what did you go through to to be able to offer these executives basically a roadmap to get to where they want to get to? Does that make well, sense? I, yeah, I think. Um, uh, Certainly, starting my own firm 15 years ago with some friends of mine, you know, you, you, you there's always a couple of kids have no shoes reality of, right? So having to grow a firm, having to create a brand, having to, you know, differentiate. I mean, when we when I began my career in organizational behavior, it was this obscure, like, what, are the, what kind of voodoo do people do kind of thing? And we could easily set ourselves apart as having a high impact on businesses because there wasn't many people doing it today. Everybody and their mother is going to JCPenney and Costco get a coaching certification, calling themselves a coach. Um, everybody's doing some version of organizational work, you know. And so the the, the real 
depth and science of organization design is a uh, you know you also have your nip and tuck the org chart version of that too, right? To the to the uninformed leader, they can't tell the difference, right? All the words sound the same, all the so we've had to go through some major disruption in our own industry to understand. Okay, wait a minute. When when I'm sitting in front of an executive and he's comparing me to those people and wondering what you know they're so much cheaper than you. Well, you know we were not prepared for what it meant to have to you know withstand that kind of disruption. We've been through our own you know rebranding. So so some of it some of what I can offer leaders comes from my own experiences as one, and some of it comes from my own my my study of psychology and my understanding of human behavior and human suffering and you know, our own identity crisis of questioning ourselves and having to deal with self-doubt. And it comes from an enormous pattern library of, you know, having worked with thousands of leaders and hundreds of organizations all over the world, you began to see the, the patterns and, and the stories and the, and, the rep, and the ditches that replicate themselves. And so I can walk into an organization right now and talk to a leader and within five minutes go, I know where this story is going. So I when, know you got, when you got that first question and just jump back into something you said about well these other coaches are a lower price when you received that first question or the first time you got that from an executive did you have a response that you already kind of had in the chamber how, uh, how did that go? i had an obnoxious one i was like well then you should hire them and then in a year only went after they ruin your business which wasn't helpful yeah uh, how did that change over time um uh, i now i i have more empathy i i get that this is an uninformed buyer and 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 if there are people who really are shopping on price, I'm definitely the wrong firm for them. Sure. But 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 to their to their defense, they're looking at websites, they're looking at bios. Somebody in HR is helping them find folks and sending them here. You know, here's five links, and it all sounds the same. So how would they differentiate, right? So you know, certainly I've got some premier brands and some premier icons in our, our company. So I've got some incredible executives who are willing to say these are the guys you want. If you if you're about to take that hill, this is who you want next to you. But uh, you know, uh, you know, our theory is help first, sell later. So if I can stay true to that and just say, you know what, let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. What, 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 what do you want help for? Where are you feeling pain? What's keeping you up at night? What have you tried that's not worked? Um, and inevitably, within a forty-five-minute conversation, I'm, I'm going to be able to add some value. I'm going to be able to say, yep, here's what other people have done or faced. Here's the kind of questions I bet they're keeping you up. Here's what here's what I bet's going on in your staff meetings or your team meetings. Um, and pretty quickly, you know, I often get the question, wow, do you have a videotape playing in my office? You know, because I've seen the stories before. So I'll earn my credibility that way. And rather than saying, here's how I'm different or better than them, um, let you, let you come to that conclusion yourself. Um, and I, and, and fully appreciate it. Say, look, you are, I'm not for everybody. So if we never speak again, I wish you the best pick whoever you want to pick, but please make sure you do the following, right? So I want to make sure I leave some compelling thoughts around I know the problem you're facing. I know the kinds of missteps people tend to make when trying to solve them. Here's a one free thought, you know, that might help you spare some additional pain. All the best to you, and hold it with a loose hand. And um, that tends to make me more make people believe I really have their best interest at heart. I'm not really just trying to sell them my shtick. Um, so you, do you go for the the signature? after that initial consultation or no uh, this is a big sale i mean when, when an executive and a very visible role is going to entrust the keys to their kingdom to you th that could be a six-month sales cycle right to build a relationship i mean to or to help them find the courage to take on what they got to take on so we're, we're not selling cars 
So, you know, I, in fact, very often when someone will say to me, do you have what, you know, after one or two conversations, do you have what you need to write a proposal? I'll say, nope. I need to talk to some of your, I need to hear some, I need to hear the other people's versions of a story because I'm sure yours is very interesting and I'm sure it's incomplete. Uh, otherwise you wouldn't have had to call me. So I need to hear what it is other people are not telling you. And so, uh, you know, when I put a proposal in front of somebody, it's as, it's as good as signed. Um, so, so it sounds like, and I know there it's, it's, it's different. I mean, I have a real estate team in San Diego and a lot of these things right here where you're saying, okay, well, this person charges less, this person charges me more, whatever it is. And you're showing that value. You're assuming the close. One thing I did take away from that was you're giving, you're basically showing your value on what they're doing, but you're also giving them homework in essence mm -hmm. at the end of your, your consultation. And so then yep. it gives you a reason for that next conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you, you want to, you're building a relationship, right? That's what you're doing. You're not yeah. closing the sale. At some point in the relationship, the meter starts running. Yeah. Um, but if you're focused only on that, um, people will see right through that. And, and um, so that, that structure of putting that together, that, that kind of uh, game plan of kind of adding value to someone before you go for the signature, was that something when you originally started, how you ran your business, or is that something you learned? I, I, so that's something I learned a long time ago. And when I, you know, before starting Ablet, I was part of a very large consulting firm, a really premier boutique firm in New York City. Um, and that was one of the premier, sort of the, the, the foundational standards of help for a sell later. Um, and, and, and keep focused on the relationship, not the transaction. Keep focused on being a, tr being a trusted confidant, not an expert. The trans you know, I, I work with, with lots of commercial and commercial real estate companies and people who are, you know, and do what you do. And so what I, what I often find fascinating about people in the real estate business is how they define what they're doing often tells you why they're not succeeding. Right. So if you're, and, and it's a highly transactional, it can be a highly transactional business, right? Get to the close, get the lease signed, get the sale done, get, you know, get, get the listing. Um, and the ones that do it really well, just don't see it that way. Right. They're you're helping people make some of the most profoundly difficult and life changing decisions in their life. Yeah. I mean, and if I, you, if well, you see, yourself see that decision yeah. and doing everything you can to help people make a great decision, that's a very different approach to real estate than getting the close. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at it this way that at least for residential real estate, real estate basically happens when life events happen, right? So we're dealing with people with life events. And so you're helping them through the process, building the roadmap. I mean, same thing, what you're doing, but I mean, you're doing it on a, um, a longer time frame. Now, when you're, when you're with the, the original firm, before you transition over to uh, your own company that you co-founded, what was that process like? When did you know that you actually wanted to build your own platform and not just stay under someone else's brand? I don't know that we, it was that, you know, I think like many were the yeah, accidental entrepreneurs. Um, we, when you, to be in our field, to have gone to this firm was like your ticket puncher, right? To, if you have, if you've gone, this was the, like the Rolls Royce of our, our field. So when you were there, it was gold. The firm got sold. The, the, the man who founded it, who was one of the forefathers of our field, brilliant man, and to you know be mentored by him. It was only about a, 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 a 80, 90 person firm. So it wasn't, it was a nice intimate group. And we had high impact. And we were at the at the table with many of the world's greatest CEOs. He sold the company to a much bigger firm. 
And when it's sold, you're now part of a, a giant machinery, right? So you're now you're in a classic professional services, you know, finders, minders, grinders hierarchy. It's about you, you're f- obsessed about feeding the dinosaur and growing revenues. And it was less, it became less about the craft and more about the, 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 the organization. And that just sucked being fun. So a couple of us thought, you know, we, we love this work too much to have it go, to, to participate in it in that way. We don't now need this giant machinery here to do this work that we love. We can go do it on our own. We never said, let's go start a firm, right? We said, let's go do this on our own and do it together because we love each other and we love this work. Um, we quickly realized we're going to need help. So as we launched off, we thought, oh, we're going to have to hire people. So we sort of, you know, s- s- clumsily navigated through how how to grow the firm but it was ne- it was never with a sense of we want to build a great firm and brand it was we want to do great work for clients um and make a major difference in the stories of leaders who invite us to help them um that meant building a firm so we sort of backed into you know building our brand and building our methodologies and building our tools and figuring out and it's a, it's a you know it's a purely lifestyle firm we did never we never wanted to be the the highly leveraged firm, typical professional services that that exploits people and makes a lot of money on their backs, because that just incents such bad behavior. The part of consultants when they're sitting there counting their hours and their billables at the client. So we have a pretty aggressive economic model that really incents doing great work. Uh, so anyway, it, it, and we you know now after 16 years doing it, I think we're sort of starting to get the hang of it. Do you, when you're looking um, at that the original co-founders, how, how many people were in that group? Three. Three. Now, there becomes an idea, I guess, of economies of scale, right? When you're a bigger a corporation. I, I know you said those the past company you're with was around 80 people or so, right? Yet there was probably some, okay, at that level, they probably had an HR director or maybe, mm-hmm. right? So when you're looking at, okay, well, we're going to transition this over to our own company, and start looking at the positions that they had at the company you're leaving. How do you know which is a vital to bring over, where you can trim the fat to actually make it? Well, yeah, I think I mean every entrepreneur has to figure out how to, what scaling means for their business, right? Yeah. And first of all, scale your competitive work. Scale what it is people want to buy, and then figure out what is your you know this you, you, every entrepreneur. And this is one of the whenever I work with startup firms or, or young companies it's one of the most difficult transitions entrepreneurs make from startup to grow up they, they just struggle with letting go of themselves and their own identity as a as a mix but they you know so whenever I ask them what's your strategy I I, I really get the, I get the mission and vision values I get the business plan for the VC I get some counterfeit but but why would somebody pick you over over their person down the street doing this what makes you special or different they, they don't answer it Right. So most entrepreneurs don't understand how to really define differentiation and how to invest disproportionately in those capabilities that make them different. They just sort of get bodies in and they they they, they hire people to do the work they don't want to do. Um, but they don't really think about how to set up a competitive machine that can scale. The second thing is scalability. Right. So the issue of, of where's the work go? Your, your, all your costs is in the, your necessary work, right? So your competitive work is the secret sauce. You need maximum impact there. But the, but the vast majority of the work at any company is necessary. Keeps the lights on, keeps you out of jail, keeps you in compliance. And that's maximum efficiency. You're not going to get paid any more to do it better than anybody else, but you need to do it you know, for the least amount of cost with, with some degree of quality. 
People don't know what that work is. So they just start throwing bodies at problems or they, they get, you can hear the seams ripping. Many, many entrepreneurs grow their companies without, without scaling them. So you get to the, you're the, the proverbial $50 million company trapped in the body of a $10 million organization, right? Or you're the proverbial $200 million company trapped in the body of a $50 million organization. And you can hear the seams ripping. And so most entrepreneurs don't know how to define strategy and then, and then build a scalable organization to figure out what work can you outsource what work doesn't need to be done? What work can you do with maximum efficiency? And then where do you focus your all your disproportionate investments on the work that's going to get dollars? In? You put a, if I put a dollar in that work, five dollars comes in the door. Being that you uh, you coach, you train executives, right? You're helping companies grow to the next level. It would it would seem like you would get hands on knowledge on a daily basis what not to do, what to do with your own company. Uh, when you're building that firm, was there things that you learned today that you're like, I wish I would have known this when we originally started 15 years ago? Oh gosh, I mean, listen, every what company doesn't have the cobbler's kids have no shoes syndrome? What real estate agent have you ever seen do a good job buying their own house? Yeah, right? Exactly. right? It's 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 just the reality of uh, of you know you're so fixated on what you're doing that you know, you're so busy working uh, in your business you can't work on your business. Yeah. Um. So uh, yeah, the issue of marketing. You know, I, I mean, I, we've had this incredible fierce debate as a firm for 15 years around. You know, because when we when we started, we had such a pipeline of referrals. We had so many great great clients, and the it was just tons of work. We we sailed right through 2008. You know, just fine. Um, but then you know we had we got over indexed on a couple of large clients, and then that who went defunct. And so we suddenly, you know, I kept trying to be the prophet of doom saying, guys, it's supply and demand, not just supply. You have to drive demand. And while, while, while we're not, while we're ignoring that reality, you know, around us are showing up onto the playing field, hundreds of thousands of players, literally hundreds of thousands of people hanging out coaching shingles, hanging out consultant shingles, doing team building and doing some version of some cheaper version of what we do. Um, and this proliferate and with better websites and glitzier marketing and very expensive videos and you know great you know basic crappy content that beautifully packaged and so we had to begin the long arduous arc probably about five six years ago of saying we we got to get in the game here it, it doesn't matter how brilliant or how exceptional we think we are at this work if people can't find us or can't tell us apart, it's useless. So fast forward six years, and I do think that, you know, we've gotten the digital realities of the world. We've gotten that, you know, decision pathways to us go through the internet in a pretty substantial way. You know, so we've done all the digital marketing, all the different accoutrements to get our content and our footprint findable, to set ourselves apart, um, gotten ourselves, you know, fiercely located, uh, steeply lo located into some pretty prestigious journals and content places where people can find us. So um, by no means have we arrived to do that well from a strategic point of view. But I'd say we're, you know, 2021, I mean, if the pandemic had hit this year, we might have been a little further along. But I do think that in the next year, the supply and demand reality of demand generation will be a, a set of machinery where I give us a B on at least. Do you do you do that in house or do you consulting firm to actually do your? Yeah, we no. We we I mean some of we did our some of the kind that we do ourselves. We we out we had to outsourced it twice. 
hired one firm for a couple of years that came alongside of us, and they were fine. We didn't understand the criticality of the SEO and all the digital analytics tools, right? They claimed to have brought that. They were really good at content, which we're also really good at. So we didn't, we just needed help shaping it. But it wasn't SEO optimized. It wasn't, you know, and they, they weren't keeping up with Google algorithms in ways that were helpful. And so we parted ways with them. And now we have a new firm uh, that is all about, you know, really sophisticated analytics and really sophisticated ways of making sure you are winning search engines and, and you're winning referrals and you are convert, your website is converting and doing all the things that you're basically today, your most important salesperson is your website, right? So making sure that all of the, of the traffic generating, lead generating activities that would get us into conversations with the right kind of client are, are starting to happen now. But boy, what a painful journey that was. If you could go back to the hiring process of finding, um, I guess the right person, the right firm now, right? What are some questions you probably ask that firm that would give you, I guess, a better leg up on finding the right person? Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, I, I think the people, the firm we had the first time, they were the right firm for that time. We just didn't recognize that the things that they thought they were good at, they weren't. Okay. Right? Uh, the, the, the clue was we, we, we once again did an amazingly uh, major overhaul of our, our website. And our traffic went in the toilet. No. And it stayed there like it was I mean, flatlined. And we're like, our, our traffic had been great. Our authority, our authority ranking had been great. Um, you know, a domain authority is a huge issue for Google, right? And we had, I, we had fought and hard won levels of domain authority, and now it's flatlined. So that was our first clue to go, what the heck? But we weren't smart enough to pull the trigger. Then I go, okay, wait a minute, something's wrong here, and we need to fix this quickly. So that went on too long. So, uh, you know, we were just, you know, we were just naive. We were, we were just uninformed. That's not, that's not our world, right? The, how the digital world of the internet, you know, which is, we all know is a lawless place of dumb sometimes. Um, and the, the ever by the minute changing algorithms and how you get, how Google ranks you and how Google rates you and all the different ways you show up in somebody's world on social media, on digital media, through email, you know, all the all the different channels to get to people um, is a really, I mean, complex and very sophisticated world uh, to get the machinery and the components right and in the right balance. We were wildly naive about how how much it took to be even mediocre at that, much less mm -hmm. good at it. And we so we didn't even know we sucked. Uh, until we got a new firm in there and we thought, oh, wow, we really did suck. And, and what was discouraging was we put, it was like we ignored it. We, you know, years ago, we stopped adoring it. We started putting tremendous amount of effort and investment into it. And yet we still hit a ceiling and plateaued and really hadn't kept up because that stuff changes like by the day. So that was a hard pill to swallow just about a little over a year ago to recognize, oh, here we thought we were about to get to that place of this is machine's going to work, and it was all effed up. And so now a, a year of grueling, grueling, do over, redo, advance the call, whatever. Um, now we're hopeful that oh, this time we will have it right. But it's that's a it's a costly and painful and demoralizing lesson to learn. But you have to go back to your question. You have to go back ten years ago. To even yeah. why 10 years ago didn't we understand you have to market. 
you really have to, you, you, yeah. the fact that you're wildly loved by so many people and getting all these referrals as, doesn't mean you don't have to tell your story. Uh, but that was our, our naive, maybe arrogant, maybe foolish conclusion. And that set those, that's what set the seed in motion to not, to not be, to not ever keep up with what it takes to be good at that. Yeah. I mean, when the good times are good, you don't start thinking about the future of, of when it might go. No, it's not bad. And we deliver the demand today, right? So now as a firm, now we're sold out, right? We're, com we're our capacity is sold out and we're trying to figure out, you know, this is the problem we said we wanted to have. Well, now we've got it. Well, now what? Um, and, and it's to your point, this is not our core bread and butter work. We should not be doing this work ourselves. You should have a great, you should have partners, right? Nobody, even a single shingle real estate agent is a single, you know, employee, right? You have a team. Yeah. Somebody is on your team. You have people doing your website. You have people doing brochures. You have people doing your open house catering. You know, whatever it is, you have a team. And even if you're, it's only your name on the shingle, you need to treat that as your company and treat those people as your team, whether they you pay them as employees or not. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. It, so it sounds like that you've had the ups and downs with your business. It never a, a real like drop where it was kind of like this is not going well. Is that correct? You never thought about actually going back to another corporation, another firm, and kind of closing doors? Uh, oh, I think about it all the time. Okay. You know, <laughs> um, have we ever been at a place where we we're going to be forced to? No. We've all been very blessed and very fortunate that because our reputation is as as, as stellar as it is, that we have we have the high regard of leaders whose literally lives we changed, whose companies we saved, whose you know whose road to success we completely transformed. What, I say that humbly. I say it's, it's an incredible privilege, but we have a, a huge track record of high levels of impact. So, you know, at any given point, if we needed to say, "Hey, could you introduce me to your friend?" Um, people are people are always proud to tell the story of their work with us, which is incredibly humbling. So, but it doesn't mean it's not, it doesn't mean there aren't days where it's really hard or discouraging, or like how much longer do I have to do this? You know, every entrepreneur faces those days where. You know the, the 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 cabin on the Montana mountain is a great you know escape appeal, right? What uh, what stops you from like getting back on track, or what keeps you back on track of saying, you know what, I'm gonna get through this, I'm on the right track. I, I'm not done yet. I mean, I I I I, I really love what I do, um, and you, I mean, in our business, you get to wake up every day, figuring out how to leave the world better than you found it, literally. And when I when I remind myself of that, it's not just that people depend on us for their work or their or their success or the to get them out of the challenge they're in, but the incredible privilege it is to do that kind of work, to know that the leader you're working with is going to turn around and change the lives of twenty thousand people. Um, it's an exponential level of of knowing how much your work matters. Um, that you just from a, a a stewardship question. I don't have I don't have the luxury of deciding time to walk away at some point I will, or I'll wind it down. Or I'll do something else, but um, I'm not ready to hang that up now, despite the days that make me want to. If, if you could look back at maybe someone that's, that's with a company right now, with a firm, uh, with a business, but it's debating the idea of building their own platform, starting their own company, kind of going on their own. What kind of advice would you give that individual? Well, it wouldn't be somebody from my firm. <laughs> but, uh, 
you know, I, I listen, but I talk to would-be entrepreneurs all the time, people leaving big corporate jobs to say, I'm going to go start my, my, my whatever, or hang out a shingle, or I'm going to go be an author, or, you know, I'm like, I've written nine books, I can, let me tell you about that. Entrepreneurialism is not for, I just had, I did a coaching call yesterday with, with a guy who just wrote his first book and left a big corporate job to go out on his own with a book and is realizing how noisy it is out there and how crowded it is out there and how lonely that can be. Um, it is not for everybody. Being an entrepreneur is not for everybody. It's not for the faint of heart. Even if you have a great idea, a great product, a great service, and that you're super talented, it doesn't mean you can build a business around all that, right? Or that you should. And so I encourage people who are thinking about making that leap to really do some soul searching, like six months of soul searching and talking to other entrepreneurs in the journey, talking to other people who do what they do, really doing some competitive analysis to understand what are you really up against here to generate revenue off this idea? How do you know there's it's feasible? How do you know you have minimal, minimal viable product or service? How do you know you have the emotional fortitude to go the distance in the dark times? I, I That's not a leap you should make lightly, but many people do. I mean, here's the problem, right? The internet has told us you can be an overnight success. Yeah. We, we see so much bad stories. You know, anybody who's done it knows that the, that it really actually takes 10 years to be an overnight success. And so if you think that there's a, an instant, I'm going to, I mean, every time I hear somebody, I, I often will sit in on, I have some VC groups that I work with and I'll sit in on their pitches to help them make some choices. And I hear that we're going to be the Uber of, and I'm like, walk away. That's the person you don't want to be putting money into, right? Because they're just wildly deluded and have an overinflated sense of their own importance and talent. And, you know, leaders who had meteoric rises inside companies have been unfortunately reinforced for certain behaviors that will actually kill them as entrepreneurs. And so uh, my advice is either don't do it, or if you're going to do it, you really have to spend the time um, questioning your motivations, questioning your expertise, testing your assumptions, uh, and really kicking the tires or whether or not you're the right person to do this. Um, because if you think, listen, we all know the stats, right? It's they're grim. 80% of them fail. If you think you're so, if you're so confident, you'll be the exception. You're probably already failed. Oh, that's, that's powerful right there. Now talking about your company, you're not failing. You guys are doing great. If we're talking again in five years from now, where do you plan to be? Where does your firm plan to be? Where does Ron plan to be? <laughs> um, I, uh, so I, uh, I bet a lot of career marbles on, uh, uh, my next book next year. So it's a really, it's a, it was a book that tested me, that stretched me. Um, I bet a lot, uh, of, uh, marbles on this because I, uh, because it's on a topic that I, I, I nearly and dearly care about. It's a book, it's a book on honesty. Oh, wow. Basically a 15 year longitudinal study of more than 3,200 leaders. Uh, to understand under what conditions will organizations create the conditions in which people will tell the truth, act fairly, and serve a greater purpose? And under what conditions will they create the reality that people will lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first? Because the reality is they, organizations can do it. It's not When you have random problems in company, they're not random at all. There's a reason someone chose us to get up in front of you and present embellished targets. There's a reason somebody throws, chooses to throw their neighbor under the bus. There's a reason someone has the courage to stand up and admit a mistake. There's a reason that somebody will, will sacrifice for a purpose they care about. Um, we are, we're all purpose washing today, trying to make it look like we care about something. But the ones that actually do, do it well. So this book 
is a book of exemplars. I didn't want to tell any more Wells Fargo stories or Volkswagen stories. I wanted to tell the stories of the men and women who are doing it right and who nailed it and who fought for principles they care about. And so I studied dozens and dozens of exemplars. I interviewed some of the world's most inspiring executives and leaders and thought leaders. And this is a book of, of here's how to do this. Here's how the world can be more honest. And here's the people you want to emulate. Here's the people whose lives you want to pattern yourself after. So I'm really, really excited about what this book can do and building a business around it and building a way to help leaders and organizations become like the stories in this book. And so I hope in five years, I will be able to tell you that it worked. What's the name of the book? The book is called, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. If you're watching this on YouTube, the book's uh, not out yet, probably not out yet. If you're listening to the podcast, because that does come out usually a couple weeks later, it might be out. So if it's out. It's, it's available for pre-order now. So you can go to Amazon and pre-order it now. So yeah, there we go. Well, I appreciate it, Ron. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for being on the road to growth. Hopefully everyone listening got some great information, great tidbits uh, about being a leader and uh, finding your own journey. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.